I feel, I feel unworthy to preach. I feel unworthy to bring this word. And yet, who isn't? It's a tremendous privilege to once again be given the opportunity to bring God's word. And I would like to bring a message this morning that I hope, as it's been an encouragement to me, it can be an encouragement to you as well. So if you'd open up your Bibles with me, we'll turn to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, and the text for this morning is going to be Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30. Before I read the text, we're thinking of this morning too, that Christmas is coming. It seems like it comes faster every year, and the snow is a good reminder of that, that Christmas is coming. And yet, looking at the history of the Jews, they waited a long time for that first Christmas. They waited 4,000 years, and we had a little bit of this in our Sunday school this morning, and, and I told my wife after, that was, that was basically my intro right there, where the uh, pastor was talking about that Ephesians 1 was this crescendo of the Old Testament and, and eternity past leading up to Christ, and that's truly what it was. The Jewish nation, God's chosen children of Abraham, they had been waiting for their Messiah now for centuries the offspring that would bruise the head of the serpent was promised back in Genesis chapter 3. And you can see throughout the history of the Old Testament that they're waiting for the Messiah. When Eve bore Cain, the words that came out of her mouth, she exclaimed, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. It almost seemed like there was an anticipation that this offspring was promised to bruise the head of the serpent. Well, here's an offspring. Well, Cain was not the Messiah. When Lamech fathered Noah, he said, This one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. But Noah was not the Messiah. When Moses gave his farewell speech, he said, I'll raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I'll put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. That's from Deuteronomy. He was pointing ahead to the future Messiah. The Lord promised David an offspring whose kingdom would be established forever. That offspring was Solomon. Solomon built the temple and Solomon died. The wait for the Messiah continued. And then in last week's sermon about the temple, we heard of the, prophe- the prophecy of Malachi that the Lord whom you suddenly seek will come to his temple. Another 400 years passes. And now, as we get to the Gospels, Jesus has come, and even in the context of Matthew 11, John the Baptist is still asking the question, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And our text this morning answers that question. Let's look at the text. Matthew eleven twenty-eight. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. All those years, all the kings, all the prophets, all the priests, they were pointing forward, forward, forward. The Messiah is coming, the Messiah is coming. And now the Messiah is here. He has not done his sacrificial work of dying on the cross yet, but he's already pointing to himself. There's no more waiting. There's no more pointing forward. The Lord has arrived. 
It would be madness or arrogance if anyone would point to themselves and say, come to me for salvation. But Jesus, fully God, fully man, could point to himself and say, come to me. So I want to look at this text this morning in two parts. First, uh, the call to salvation, and then secondly, the call to discipleship. So first, the call to salvation. Jesus begins this call by saying, come to me. At first glance, we could take this to mean that would refer to his hearers that were physically present, that they would draw near to Jesus. We're now 2,000 years removed from the days when Jesus walked the earth in the flesh. However, only a few years after Christ's ascension, Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5.16, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. So no, this is not merely approaching Jesus when he is on earth. This call is for all of us who hear, even who have not physically seen Jesus. In uh, John 6.35, Jesus explains in a parallelism what it means to come to him. John 6.35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So, you can see that whoever comes to me and whoever believes in me, they're used as synonyms. So coming to Christ is believing in him. To believe in Jesus is is more than just to believe that he existed. Uh, Traditionally or historically, faith, faith has been understood to have three parts to it. Knowledge, assent, and trust. So knowledge, we have to know about Jesus. We can't come to him if we don't know who he is. It involves the intellect. It involves the mind. It's not a mindless pursuit. We put our faith in an object, and in this case, a person. We put our faith in Christ. And it also is assent, so we must receive Christ. Faith does involve the emotions. Another way to put it is that we must be convicted that this is true. And then finally, trust. We rely on Christ alone as our only hope of salvation. Faith does involve the will. When we are resigned to Christ, we trust in him. Now, Jesus has the call, come to me. Now, who is this call for? The verse continues, all who labor and are heavy laden. Now, I want to look at or to consider two classes of laboring and heavy laden people. The first is, I think, clear in the immediate context. And the second is a more broader context that also includes us as well. I think both of them can include us. But for the immediate context, I think it's for those who labor under legalism. If we look at Matthew 11, the story continues in Matthew 12. The next episode we have is the disciples are plucking grain on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees, they were imposing burdens beyond the law, and they supposedly wanted to keep the Sabbath day holy. They wanted to prevent the disciples from plucking grain on the Sabbath, but Jesus pronounces that they have condemned the guiltless. Another episode immediately following in Matthew 12, so right in this context, they would have prevented Jesus from healing on the Sabbath, and Jesus' pronouncement to them is that, It is lawful to do good on the Sabbath, Matthew 12, 12. So Jesus sums up the hypocrisy of the Pharisees in Matthew 23, verse 4. It says, They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. 
So Jesus' call to these people, all who labor and are heavy laden, these people are laboring under the law's demands, and then beyond that, also the doctrines of men that were taught as commandments of God. Even the Old Testament law, without any additional man-made laws, was not possible to be kept to gain righteousness. The Apostle Peter is quoted in the book of Acts as saying that, that's Acts 15.10, that asking Gentiles to keep the Mosaic law was putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. And then Paul tells us in Galatians 2.21 that if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So this call is for all those who are attempting to be righteous by their own works, either keeping God's commandments to earn his favor, or maybe even adding commandments of their own. And it's so easy to um, be a Pharisee at heart sometimes, to ourselves and, and especially to other people, where we can judge other people by a standard that, you know, God can see their heart, God can see their motive, but if we excel in one area and someone else doesn't, it's easy to be a Pharisee and think, well, you know, they're not, they're not measuring up to God. And I think, like, I grew up in a pretty traditional, uh, pretty traditional religion, and it was, it was very much so that it was, it was like the Pharisees. It was important to keep the outside of the cup clean, but what was on the inside of the cup? And for these people who are laboring under legalism, yeah, there's a time where you can put up a facade of righteousness, but is there rest in that? That's just heavy. It says they're labor, they, it's laboring and heavy laden. There is no rest in that. Now, the second group that I want to look at for laboring, the call is to all who labor and are heavy laden, is the burden of sin. In Isaiah chapter 1, when God described the people of Israel during the final stages of the kingdom of Judah, he described them like this in Isaiah 1.4. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Notice the phrase laden with iniquity. Their sin was burdening them down. The burden and labor of sin is also described in the Bible as slavery. When the Apostle Peter is describing the false teachers in 2 Peter 2.19, he says that they promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. 2 Peter 2.19. So sin and slaves. There's also a blinding aspect to sin as well. And notice from this verse, 2 Peter 2.19, that sin comes disguised as freedom. And that's often the guise that sin comes in. It will, it will make you feel good. It will set you free. You won't be bound. But by practicing sin, we're under greater shackles than any physical shackles could be. When Jesus tells the Pharisees that he's able to free them, in John chapter 8, they respond that, John eight thirty three, they have never been enslaved to anyone. They also were blind, that they weren't truly free under the Romans in a physical sense, but worse, worse than that, 
They were slaves to their sin. Jesus makes it clear to them in John 8.34 when he says to them, everyone who practices sin, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And if you look at the context, even in our, even in our text this morning, in Matthew 11, uh, 25, where Jesus prays before this call, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. The wise and understanding of the time, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, they were, they were blind to the teaching of Christ. They were righteous in themselves. Jesus said in Matthew 9, 3, For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So if we deem ourselves righteous, we have no need of Christ. Well, there's no savior for that. There's a savior for sin, but there's not a savior for you're beyond saving if you deem yourself righteous. This call to believe in Christ is for those who know themselves to be a sinner. And then we look at the third part of verse 28. So come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I believe this rest to be resting in and receiving the finished work of Christ. In a word, salvation. The use of rest for salvation is also found in the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Notice that this rest is a gift. Jesus said, I will give you rest. Not, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and you will have earned your rest. Those would be that would be considered a wage. That would be considered a due. That would be considered something that was owed. But this is something undeserved. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's not a reward. It's a gift. That's the nature of salvation. And our pride balks at that. Our pride says, no way. Is there not something I can do to earn my salvation? And the answer is no. There's nothing, nothing we can do to earn our salvation. All, all we contribute to salvation is basically bringing the sin and we accept Christ's righteousness and that's a gift of rest. That's the nature of salvation. Very favorite verses, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no man may boast. The moment we believe in Christ... We are justified. We can rest in that fact. William Hendrickson, the commentator, says, Such rest is not only negatively absence from uncertainty, fear, anxiety, and despair. Positively, it is peace of mind and heart, assurance of salvation. And if you think, even in the context of the Jewish people who were hearing Christ in that day, they were still under the Old Covenant system. The Old Covenant system was not a system of rest. The sacrificial system could never perfect the consciences of, the, of, of those who offered the sacrifices. The blood had to flow daily to cover sin. No rest. Years ago, I heard a sermon, and it stuck with me. The pastor was talking about the furniture of the tabernacle and how um, there was no 
There was no chair or no place for the priest to sit down. Well, there was no need for that because his work was never done. And that stuck with me. And then when Jesus finished his work, what, what did he do? He ascended into heaven and he sat down. When he called out from the cross, it is finished. He meant that. It is finished. That priestly work was accomplished. He was the priest. He was the sacrifice. And he was the temple. So we can have this rest in Christ where we can, we can in a way, you know, we're with him in the heavenly places. So when he's sitting, we're sitting too. And I'd like to ask you this morning, for, for those who have come and tasted that rest, praise God for that. Thank him for that rest. But if you have not tasted that rest, come to Christ alone. And don't trust in anything else to give you that rest all the other avenues to try to attempt to find peace or pleasure or um, supposed freedom, they're dead ends. And Jesus tells us that you know, we are to come to him. He says, come to me and I will give you rest. Sometimes I think we can feel, um, we have a little bit of a pharisaical thought in our, in our hearts and minds too. And I feel it myself where, you know, do I feel like that I'm more justified when I obey or when I'm doing, practicing the means of grace? Yes, those give us assurance and, and, and we must do them. But am I less justified when I, when I do something wrong? And the answer is no. We're forgetting that we do have rest in Christ. Now, so that's the call to salvation. <clears throat> now I also want to look at the call to discipleship, and we're going to look at that in verse 29. So he calls us, he says, first, let's look at 28 again. So come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now 29, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. So a literal definition of a yoke it's something we don't see very often nowadays. I just looked it up on Got Questions. A yoke is a wooden cross piece fastened over the necks of two animals and attached to a plow or a cart. A yoke allows two animals to share a load and pull together. In Jewish literature, a yoke represented the sum total of obligations which, according to the teaching of the rabbis, a person must take upon himself. That's from William Hendrickson. So I found it, just so that there's not a confusion here, so let's remember that at this point, we've, give, we've been given the rest. We can't take the yoke metaphor out of order. We're not yoked to Christ to earn our salvation, where Christ takes 50% of the load and we take the other 50% and we're both pulling together to earn our salvation. Jesus earns our salvation 100%. And he gives it to those who believe in him. This take my yoke and up, upon you and learn from me is, I think, further obedience after we've received, received the gift of salvation. The word learn is the same word that the word disciple is derived from. So the disciple is one who learns. When Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, he's calling us to be his disciples Again, his first hearers could have literally sat at his feet and followed and learned directly from him. We are of those blessed, Jesus referred to when speaking to Thomas. Jesus said to him, 
Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So when we believe Christ, we are now free to serve Christ. And I thought that catechism question we had this morning was was perfectly appropriate, where the answer... Since we are re- okay, so the question was: Since we are redeemed by grace alone, through Christ alone, must we still do good works and obey God's word? Yes, because Christ, having redeemed us by His blood, also renews us by our Spirit. And this is the part I thought was so appropriate, so that our lives may show love and gratitude to God, so that we may be assured of our faith in the fruits, and so that our godly behavior others may be won to Christ. There is definitely a use for obeying God and works. But we can't have that, I guess we could say we can't have, uh, you know, the yoke on on the wrong side, I guess you could say, or the the cart before the ox or something. But we cannot have works to earn favor with God, but in gratitude and kind of third use of the law, that the law guides us to God, guides us in obedience, that uh, we are yoked to Christ in that sense. We will always be yoked to something or someone. Before Christ, we were yoked either to sin or to legalism. Um, but now that we're yoked to Christ, we're free from that. In Romans 6.20, Paul sums it up uh, well. Romans 6.20-22, through 22, he says, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. This is the true freedom. We're no longer slaves to sin, but slaves to God. Here also, I think, is a further explanation of taking up the yoke and learning from Jesus. So the end of verse 22 there, Romans 6.22, Paul says, It leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Whereas coming to Christ like justification is one point, it's a one point in time action. The taking up the yoke and learning from Christ like progressive sanctification, it's a lifelong pursuit. We take his yoke and learn not to be saved. We take his yoke and learn because we have been saved. Putting works before salvation, or rather trying to use works to gain salvation, was the error of those who viewed the law as the end rather than the means. They were yoked not to Jesus who had fulfilled the law, but to the law itself. This was the temptation for the Galatian Christians who had experienced the freedom of being yoked to Christ but we're tempted to go to the works of the law. Paul is blunt with them in Galatians 5.1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. We see in Romans 10.4 that righteousness through the law comes only through faith in Jesus. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. When we are yoked to Christ and learn from him, we forego being yoked to trying, our own, trying to earn our own righteousness. Now, so the way I understand it is verse 28, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's justification, us coming into the kingdom. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, is our 
Christian life of obedience and sanctification. Now, how is that life of obedience and sanctification described? Verse 30 tells us, For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. For my yoke is easy, as opposed to the yoke of works righteousness or sin. We've already seen how pressed down the Jews were under the law. When Jesus came to the self-righteous and those who are wise in their own eyes, he came with hard words of woe. Jesus' words to those who feel their sins and burden are sweet and gracious. Jesus is gentle with the bruised reed. Jesus is gentle with the smoldering wick. He did not come to increase the burden. He came to set people free. So he says his yoke is easy and his burden is light. His burden is light. That's a blessed paradox. By definition, a burden is that which is born with labor or difficulty. Not so with the burden that Jesus gives us. This burden is light. The heavy work of salvation has been done. Jesus and the helper he has sent us, the Holy Spirit, are with us in our obedience and sanctification. John tells us in 1 John 5.3 that God's commandments are not burdensome. Now, it's, it's not that we're preaching or I'm preaching a life of ease. There will be trials and tribulation in this life. But we have the best helper to be with us during those times. We will have trials, but we are not alone. We will be free no matter how oppressed things seem around us. And I wanted to read John 16.33 as well. I thought that was, that was fitting for this part. John 16.33. John 16.33. Jesus said, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And I wanted to read a quote here from J.C. Ryle. He says this, No doubt there is a cross to be carried if we follow Christ. No doubt there are trials to be endured and battles to be fought. But the comforts of the gospel far outweigh the cross. Compared to the service of the, of the world and sin, compared to the yoke of Jewish ceremonies and the bondage of human superstitions, Christ's service is the highest is in the highest sense easy and light. His yoke is no more a burden than the feathers are to a bird. His commandments are not grievous. His ways are ways of pleasantness, and all his paths are peace. And I thought that was very fitting, where he describes it as so light as feathers on a bird. And Jesus is so gracious and gentle with us. And why... Why is his yoke easy and his burden light? Because this comes from his very nature. He describes it in verse 29. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. Here is our taskmaster. This is the one we are to be yoked to in service. He is gentle and lowly in heart. This is his very nature towards us. What does it mean that Jesus is gentle? Jesus called himself the good shepherd And that imagery is even throughout the Old Testament when referring to God. Uh, One example that I wanted to pick out is Isaiah 40, verse 11. 
He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. And I don't know much about sheep, but I do know that they are not to be driven. They are not to be um, pushed. They're to be, you have to be gentle with them. You see, when Jacob met Esau and Esau wanted to send an armed band before them, uh, Jacob said, if they're driven hard for one day, his flocks would die, the little flocks. And that's how Jesus is towards us. He doesn't drive us hard. He's a gentle, gentle taskmaster. Uh, Paul uses the image in one, uh, in one place, I didn't cite this, but where he said he was gentle like a nursing mother. And if you know how a mother is with an infant, that is so tender and gentle and sweet. It's not demanding and driven and performance-orientated. It's, it's the most perfect caring um, in this it, picture for us, and it gives us a picture of the heart of Christ. Now, what does it mean that Jesus is lowly? Uh, in the ESV, elsewhere, it's translated as humble estate, downcast, and humble. Jesus brings himself low and accessible, Matthew is the gospel of Jesus the King. It's the gospel of Jesus and his kingdom. And yet, he stoops down low to reach us where we are. We cannot reach him, so he brings himself down to where we are. That's his heart. It's his heart and his nature to be gentle and lowly. This is who he is. Lastly, in verse 30, we see the fruit or the effect of finding of, um, of taking up Christ's yoke and learning from him. It says 29, the end of 29, you will find rest for your souls. We've already been given rest in verse 28. I will give you rest. And that is the kind of rest that must be given and cannot be earned. But now here in verse 29, it says that we will find rest for our souls. Uh, this, I believe, is the experience of having having the peace of God. We're giving peace with God at justification. And now as we take the yoke and learn from our gentle and lowly Savior, we experience the peace of God. What a gentle Savior that in our service to him, we find rest. Now to close here, I just have a few questions. Especially to the burdened. Have you come to Christ? He is able to give you rest. He's not only able, he's willing to give you rest. He stooped down and came down low and he, it's his heart to give you rest. Another question, are you under the burden of trying to be good enough to earn your own salvation? Or are you under the burden of sins? If you are carrying that burden, bring it to Christ. He's able to carry it. He's able to take it from you, and we're able to rest in him. Jesus is gentle and lowly. He's not far away. He's not inaccessible. We don't have to take a number and, and wait or, um, you know, like the high priest in, in ancient Israel, one day a year entered into the Holy of Holies. Jesus is able to be reached Right now, as, as you hear his call, 
he is willing to accept and to have you come to him. If we believe in him, we will find the rest for our souls. I hope, I hope you can leave here today encouraged not to come and, and to see, is there something more that I must do? Or now he's giving me another thing to do. But rather that we rest in Christ. Christ has done, we rest in him. And now as we serve him, we find rest in him some more. Let's pray. Dear God, I thank you that you are such a gentle, lowly Savior. I thank you that your yoke is easy and your burden is light. I thank you for the rest that we can have in you. I pray that if there is any here this morning that deem themselves righteous or are looking to their own righteousness to to be saved, I pray that you would open their eyes and heart, that they would come to you. I pray that you would help us to enjoy your rest more and more, that we would glory in it, we would share it with others, and we would um, just continue to walk in that rest all our days, and that one day in eternity we can all be together and enjoy that eternal rest that you have promised us. I pray that you would give us a, a good Lord's Day, that we would all um, be blessed this day, and as we look forward to the Christmas season and celebrating your coming, I pray that you would um, turn our hearts and our minds to you, the gentle and lowly Savior. I pray this in your name. Amen.